So I want the iTablet and the iWatch or Apple Watch or iWatch or whatever you call it. Working and learn from designers at Amazon and Quora, developers at SoundCloud and Heroku, and entrepreneurs like Patrick Ambron from Brand Yourself. You can level up your design, dev, and promotion skills at Level Up Con, taking place October 8th and 9th in downtown Saratoga Springs, New York. Only two hours by train from New York City, this is the perfect place to enjoy early fall and Oktoberfest while you mingle with industry pioneers in a resort town in upstate New York. Get your ticket today at levelupcon.com. Space is extremely limited for this premium conference experience. Don't delay. Check out levelupcon.com now. This episode of iFreaks is brought to you in part by Postcards. Postcards is the simplest way to allow user feedback for right inside your application. With just a simple gesture, anyone testing your app can send you a postcard containing a screenshot of the app and some notes. It's a great way to handle bug reports and feature requests from your client. It takes five minutes to set up, and the first five postcards each month are free. Get started today by visiting www.postcard.es. This episode is brought to you by CodeSchool. CodeSchool offers interactive online courses in Ruby, JavaScript, HTML, CSS, and iOS. Their courses are fun and interesting and include exercises for the student. To level up your development skills, go to ifreakshow.com slash CodeSchool. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 72 of the iFreak Show. This week on our panel, we have Andrew Madsen. Hi, from Salt Lake City. Alondo Brewington. Hello from North Carolina. James Uber. I've already got my iPhone 6. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, and that's Chris. Is it Nuri? Nuri. Yeah, you got it pretty close. And hi from Cleveland, Ohio. Awesome. I think we're just missing uh, Central Time on the show this week. <laughs> Do you want to introduce yourself really quickly? Well, my, my name's Chris Nuri. I've been doing kind of iPhone, iOS development kind of since they released the SDK. I work with one other guy, formed a company called the Tiny Tribe. You can find us at tinytribe.com. Uh, we have a handful of apps, but our big one is Moodboard. It's uh, geared towards the graphic design, but pretty much anyone that wants to make a collage of images, text, colors, anything that's going to inspire them for a project and uh, help them make it better. So it's Pinterest for geeks. Uh, you know what? I wouldn't even say for geeks because I, we have people that do weddings on them. We have people that do vacation collages, technical things. I, it, it's been amazing the different things that it's been used for. Nice. It's really interesting. We actually brought you on to talk about that app. When I was introduced to you, I, they said that you had done some stuff like resizing images and stuff that you had had to deal with, things like that. Mm-hmm. That's probably one of the biggest challenges that I've had to tackle. And this was back, you know, way back when with the iPad which was severely limited in resources and the ability to load an image from whether you took it from your DSLR. I mean, we didn't have iPhones with such great cameras at the time that to be able to process that not only in a quick way, but to maintain as high of a resolution as possible. So Moodboard offers the ability to kind of zoom in into the actual image to the point where you can see detail at a very high resolution. And the challenge was, is how do you load an image that is twice the size of the the pixels of the iPad screen at the time without exploding the device? I mean, literally to the point that the device completely crashed and had to be restarted. So I was blown through memory real quick. And uh, that's the, one of the challenges of just image processing, just in general. You, you never realize 
how much, you know, even if it's a, a one meg JPEG file, even though it's compressed, when you have to dump it onto the screen, it, it can take up a ton of memory, right? So is it a memory issue then? It's not a library issue or some other performance issue? No, it, it's strictly a memory issue. So the way to think about it is you could have a JPEG image that say it's 1920 by 1080, right? So that's probably only about a few hundred K in terms of file size. You know, you go into Finder, you do a Git info, and it shows it's only like 300 kilobytes, right? Well, unfortunately, when you have to push something to an iPad screen or an iPhone screen or pretty much any type of screen, it's got to take every one of those little pixels, and those are represented in blocks of memory. You basically have to take the height and the width and then multiply it by four. And this isn't necessarily a completely scientific algorithm, so please send your complaints elsewhere. But uh, <laughs> when you do that, you end up with that same size image that was, say, 300K to something that equals like 8 meg in memory on the device. Well, you do that, and you do that times 20-some-odd images, it starts to add up really quickly. And so how do you... I've done this with devices as new as an iPad too, and things go down pretty hard when this happens. You don't get a nice, you know, error. It goes oh, no. you crash. You, you crash the entire device at times, and you don't even get error warnings. It's actually kind of it was entertaining at times. The first time I did it was I got the little Apple logo that you see normally when you restart it, and I'm going, "What did I just do?" <laughs> uh, I mean, literally to the point, the device knew had no idea what to do. That it goes, "All right, I'm restarting." And so, yeah, it's not pretty. It's not a pretty thing. And I had to, we had to do this primarily without touching the device at first, too. So that was the other challenge. Because when the first iPad came out, none of us developers had access to the physical device. All we had was a simulator, which oh, added right. even more challenge to, you don't, the, the simulator does a good job of kind of showing what should look, it should look like on the screen, but it doesn't do a great job of simulating the hardware that's going to be on. So this was something that immediately became evident when the iPad came out. And, you know, you, you have that magical unboxing and you go, all right, I need to get my app on to see how it actually works. And then you go, oh, uh-oh. <laughs> so that was, that was the big first update, definitely, was handling some of these images. And uh, through the process, found some algorithms in terms of kind of piecing different techniques that I saw from other places. None of them were iOS or even Objective-C specific or Apple specific and doing a method of taking chunks of the image one at a time and presenting them to the screen so you only had that little bit of chunk in memory at one time and doing it that way. And that allowed for the iPad 1 to show a 70 megapixel image that I found from NASA.com or .gov. Yeah, I was curious. I was I was thinking like sometimes finding solutions in areas that, uh, to problems you have that are maybe outside of the domain that you're used to. Um, so, what sort of prompted you to sort of look in these places where there other entities or, or or areas where image processing was a challenge as well, or did you sort of stumble upon it or what? Well, you know what? It came around in that I first kind of found out about CA Tiled Layer, which is something that Apple provides in their core animation framework. And so that was the first thing that got me thinking, okay, I can tile an image, right? I can take that, and CA Tile Layer has its own intricacies of doing things kind of an asynchronous step-by-step -step process of here's a tile, let's display it. Here's another tile, let's display it. And so that got me thinking. I go, okay. So that's the first technique that I started. 
And really, it was a matter of figuring out how to get the tile and playing around with different sizes. Do you go for a tile that's 128 by 128 pixels, or do you go the entire width of the image and only do maybe 10 pixels tall? You know, do you do, you do a grid, or you, do you do something vertical or something horizontal? And a lot of it was trial and error, trial and error. And also, a lot of it was just diving into frameworks and lower level core graphics and that of things that I didn't even know. I didn't have experience with image processing or even low level core graphics at the time. Yeah, something like that can be daunting. For instance, I'm not really strong when it comes to those libraries and there's a bit of intimidation there. So it's good to hear that that you can solve these problems and by just going and, and taking this step by step. Maybe. Mm-hmm. The other thing that helped, and this was the first time that I'd ever used it, was I actually used one of the Apple developer service, whatever they call them, that each each year as an Apple developer, you get to work with an engineer for two different instances. So I had finally gotten to the point where I go, there's got to be a way. Obviously, the Photos app seemed to kind of hold this image and it would display it. Why can't I do it, right? So sent out the email, finally kind of bit the bullet and... Even as the engineer that I got hooked up with, he was kind of stumped at the time, and we kind of worked it back and forth of like, hey, how about we try this? Hey, how about we do this? Which actually ended up being part of some sample code that is part of the large image downsizing that was posted a little bit ago. It's actually a little outdated now because there's been some updates to some of the frameworks, but overall it gives a really good idea of basically what the app does and how it chunks out images and loads them into a CA tiled layer. So you can find that under the developer portal under Apple. I think that brings up, we've used those technical support incidents in a couple instances, but it also reminds me that we had a very similar problem where we had really huge images, and they were actually images that were scrolling, but like many times the width of a device screen, and Mm -hmm. we had these exact same kinds of problems with huge memory usage causing the app to terminate, and it took me a long time to figure out how to go about doing that without running into memory problems, but also while keeping scrolling performance really high, and it was talking with an Apple engineer at WWDC that provided the breakthrough, and I think a lot of iOS developers don't really think about those tech support incidents, and you get two a year, so you might as well use them. Absolutely. Yeah, it's paid for. It's right in your account, so why not, right? I mean, the worst it is is you wasted an email. The Apple engineers have always been helpful when I've had an issue and kind of needed to work something out. So what are some more memory management tricks with images? The big thing was the chunking and sticking within aligned memory blocks. What do you mean? If you, computers themselves want to stick within like a certain number of bytes. If you have things that aren't aligned, you know, the, you, you always hear the numbers 128, 256, 512. Sticking within those ranges, they tend to read images in that, that sense as well. Mm-hmm. And so like the big find that really was the precursor for figuring out how to take a silly large image and take a chunk at a time was using a core graphics call called CG image create with image in rect. And that will actually take an image that you already have, you've loaded via a URL or a path and you can call the different recs. And if you kept the rectangles within those particular ranges of like 128, 512, 256, the performance was much better. There were times that I was going and trying to load something that was, say, 
500. 500 is just a natural, comfortable number as a human, uh, whereas 512 was faster if I did it that way. It was because of how deep down, even beneath core graphics, there's image I.O., which that does the loading of the image and decoding of the image from file and then how it processes the actual image and all that. And so there was a lot of kind of trial and error of, of doing that. And um, honestly, a lot of it is trial and error. You have to be willing to go, all right, this sounds stupid, but let me try doing it. And then use instruments, test, retry something else, test, retry something else. And that's really where it was is being able to find the balance, even between different devices. The difference between an iPad 2 and an iPad 1 was significant. So the extra algorithm that it uses is slightly different. It uses bigger chunks on the 2 versus the 1, the 2 and greater. So do you end up, end up managing the difference chunk sizes? Yeah, for the most part, it is just a check for the retina screen or not. At the time when the retina, between the two, there was just a check of the device. And then when the retina screen came out even, you have even more of a challenge because you have four times as many pixels that you're managing, which means you have four times as much memory. So there were times that you actually almost had to go lower in resolution because you were putting so many different pixels onto the screen. And the graphics, the memory and the graphics processor weren't necessarily up to speed at the time, especially with the iPad 3. That's since kind of been improved as they've updated the, the line. Yeah, I've seen this with some an application I worked on a year ago. When we, had, when we started using newer hardware with retina displays, like performance went down. We're like, no, that's the wrong way. It's supposed to go the other way. Newer hardware is supposed to be faster. But if you're doing like real graphics intense stuff, it can actually be slower. So it's a good thing to keep in mind. I'm not sure if we got a direct answer to this, but do you actually then just resize the images to fit in those memory blocks, or is there some other approach that you're using to, uh, you know, to do you just resize it in memory? Or I'm, I'm curious. The way the app in the the app store right now works is it takes the very large image and it will chunk it down. Not only at the 100% scale, but it will also do it at like a 50% scale and a quarter scale. So that way, as you zoom in and out, because if, you, if you're showing, say, an image that's twice the size of the iPad screen, right? But you're showing the entire image, well, that's really the image scaled down 50%. So you don't need to be showing the full resolution because you're never going to get the fidelity anyway. So actually go through and do the 100%, the 50%, the quarter, or 25%. So that way, depending on how you have an, an image zoomed and how it's being presented to the user at that time, it will choose the correct image and display that as the tile instead. And so that was another way that, especially with dealing with a large number of tiles, if you only have to show something that's 50% resolution, you speed up not only going back and forth on the disk, but also just in presenting it on the screen. So that was that was another big thing. The other thing that I kind of learned and kind of learned again by trial and error is the work that the Apple engineers did, they're very smart. <laughs> they knew and understand when the system is under stress. And so if you have something like a CG image or a CI image or even a UI image and it's backed by a file, 
it will naturally release memory if it can't hold it. And then if you make a call to it again, it'll go back to the disk, and that's a performance hit, but it's not crashing at least. And so there's this kind of teeter-tottering of how much do you allow in terms of performance versus not crashing and all of that as well. Yeah, that makes sense. We talked about mm-hmm. displaying something that's the image might be twice as big as a screen, but you don't need all that resolution. Did you do anything sure. with scrolling where you're actually displaying things Shh. a smaller part that has to be expanded? Sure. So Moodboard in general can have a large number of images at any type of scale on the board. So say we'll just deal with one image. It's just a background image. And it's twice the size of the screen. So if you zoom in all the way to viewing the image at 100% resolution, you're only going to see a quarter of the image. And so that works really well with CA tiled layer. And you can actually then scroll, say, from right to left and the tiles that are off-screen will load in asynchronously as you kind of move around, and the ones that go off-screen then get dumped. So you don't need that memory footprint. You don't need the footprint of the entire image, just kind of the viewport that you're looking at. And so that's one of the techniques that you can do to kind of save on it. You'd only need to load in a, a subset of the image, and then you can, if you want to pinch out and zoom the whole image, you can do that, or two-thirds of the image, or however it might be. So it's a variable scale of both the position as well as the scale. Uh, CA Tiled Layer, was a, it's a very poorly documented, in my opinion, and it had some issues early on, but it's a, a remarkable tool and probably an underutilized tool, I would say. What did you do to get the word out about this app? You know what? Not as much as you would think. We got really lucky or good. Uh, I, I don't know. Worked really hard to get it to be one of the first apps out for iPad only when the iPad came out. So that, that was one of the first things. You're in a very small marketplace at the time. And sent out some press releases, sent out some flyers and some requests to be interviewed and get reviews by different blogs, Apple blogs and that. And got really good response. And from there, it kind of took off. We got lucky enough that Apple chose Moodboard to be featured a number of times in both the U.S. store uh, along with international stores, and then got some pretty good reviews from different Apple blogs uh, around, um, and then kind of got some word of mouth also via the educational discount. So we set our app to be educational discounts, so that way the educational institutions can buy them in bulk at a discount, and then we've actually had the app used in classrooms. And so that's been a really neat thing to see how teachers and professors are actually using it for a teaching aid, Uh, whether it be a graphics class or a graphic design class or just other things. And and that's been been kind of our, our motto of, you know what, make this something that one you're going to be proud of and make it do something really, really well. Don't, it doesn't have to have 5,000 bells and whistles, but make it do those one or two bells and whistles really well. And the response has been great. In terms of direct marketing, we haven't really done much. It's Maybe that's an anomaly, but I normally fall into the lines of, you know what, if you're going to do something really well, you'll get noticed at some point. It might not be right away. It might not be as soon as you want, but... Quality gets noticed, and so that's always been the kind of driving force behind Moodboard. How do you keep in touch with your uh, 
customers to know what they're doing with your app? A lot of it's email, some Twitter, but a lot of a lot of email and and Twitter. Um, also, just seeing we'll notice tags on Flickr or Instagram where you can tell that it was used on the iPad by the app, just based off of some of the stock backgrounds and and things like that. The other thing that we've had, and it's been kind of interesting. This was something that was totally not expected, but we've had a number of television programs contact us, and they are actually using them in their television shows. Oh, cool. Uh, so one of them would be the, the PBS show, the um, Genealogy Roadshow. So they will go through and find images. It's, it's all about finding your, your, your history and your genealogy for a particular person in, this, in a, a segment. And they project the app onto an Apple TV and a, a TV that's close by, and they use it to present images of their history, whether it be their grandfather or great-grandfather or something like that, or, or mother, whatnot. And that was really interesting because it was something that was never even anticipated that would be how it would be used. Do you keep marketing your, your app? Oh, uh, we do. It's been a little dormant recently, kind of waiting on the, the iOS changes. Uh, I definitely see there being some opportunity to jump down into the iPhone. The iPhone's the most popular camera phone, or the most popular digital camera, just in general. And so to have an app that can take pictures and move pictures around in your pocket, it's a great opportunity. The size has just been the limiting factor. Yeah, I'm looking on the site on iTunes, it looks like your last update was 2012. So you've had a pretty good run without having to do a whole lot. Are there any changes that you're going to need to make for uh, iOS 8? The changes in iOS 8 are going to be more utilizing what iOS 8 brings. The, the better ability to share files with iCloud, the better ability to have your stuff across all devices, whether it be on your iPad or your iPhone, if there is an iPhone app, hint, hint. Um, <laughs> but, so that, uh, along with some of the sharing features, investigating some of the image processing features. There's a lot of great apps that allow you to add filters and different things that they are much better at doing than Moodboard is capable of doing. So taking advantage of that and being able to interoperate with other photo apps is a, a huge opportunity. So that's, that's kind of a big deal right there. iCloud is probably the biggest thing. In terms of exact changes, the app itself has been pretty solid. It hasn't had any major issues with iOS 8 recently. So we shouldn't have too much in terms of short term, but looking long term and upcoming in the next few months, definitely have some big plans. I would love to experiment, although I don't really know if it's going to be possible or, or what, uh, but experiment with HomeKit. I think there is a huge opportunity for, I mean, the app's called Moodboard. It's supposed to inspire you and get you in the mood for whatever you're working on. And just imagine the ability of as you add images and as, as you add colors that it, you know, automatically changes the colors of the room, of the lights in the room. Those are some opportunities that, while it might seem gimmicky at first, there's definitely something that, that might be there. Again, that's way down the pipeline in terms of, what's possible, but I, I think these types of things with, with HomeKit and HealthKit, even completely unrelated, but developers and the opportunities for apps to make use of it is, I don't even think we have a good scope of what is possible now. It'll be interesting to see where things go. 
Oh, absolutely. I, I think I really do believe and I hope, and you know what, maybe I'm wrong. I've been wrong before that developers do kind of hit the ground running on some of these, these new things in iOS 8. I think there is a large opportunity for new ways that we interact with our technology. Uh, the Apple Watch, you know, just announced is kind of one of those things that kind of borders between a device that we use versus a device that we live with. I mean, we have our phones all the time, but it's in your pocket sometimes. It's on your desk. The watch right there, it, it knows when it's on your wrist. We're blurring the lines of technology and experience. And uh, I, I think it's kind of a fun time and a fun thing to uh, be a part of. You can think of how far we've come kind of mobile technologies in you know, six, seven years, but we're still, we're very much at the beginning of anything. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you, you think about just how we've gone from the ideas of, of skeuomorphism and duplicating physical things on a flat screen, just in, in the effort to maintain familiarity. And now we have familiarity with pinch to zoom, which is something that never really existed in, in the physical world. We have this whole concept of holding up a phone so that way we can chat with someone else that's halfway across the world. It's making the world smaller. It's also making the world more entertaining. It's making the world more engaging. And and these are all things that are, are very possible. It's, it's an incredible time. It really is. And uh, I can't wait to see what other people come up with. So do you think the skeuomorphism was just a temporary step? In a way, yes. There's nothing wrong with maintaining familiarity. I, I don't believe that there was anything directly wrong. It's when it got absurd. It's when it got to the point of skeuomorphism was actually limiting the ability to do something better, right? You know, you, you have this, the leather and the, the paper jagged edges and all of that, and those take up some space where maybe I could put something else that was important on a calendar, uh, something that's not normally there. Um, th that's where skeuomorphism got in the way. Now, I will argue something like iBooks, where, yeah, you have the page curl and all that, but dividing it up into pages, I don't think is necessarily a bad thing. I think it's a very natural way of ordering and reading a book. I guess the ancient Greeks and all that, when they were reading things on scrolls, were probably saying the same, saying bad things about books at the time. But it's a natural, it was a natural progression. There's a, a visceral reaction that you can have with certain skeuomorphism metaphors, skeuomorphic metaphors. And that connection with you and the technology is kind of keep what's keeping you engaged, what keeps the user engaged. It's just a matter of not going too far because you can put the, you put the user off too. I have a question about that in combination with something you said earlier about sort of getting uh, the featured in different markets. Are you seeing like a difference? Are you getting feedback that maybe as the proliferation of these devices starts to grow into some of these other markets? I know there's their concept of like the next billion users. Is there a challenge there with a large segment of users who may be sort of acclimated to a lot of these metaphors or gestures and those who aren't? Does that hinder you in what you see taking the uh, app? In the future, do you have to sort of like hold back to make sure everybody else can catch up that hasn't really kind of, they're not, the, the societies aren't quite yet used to mobile devices? Yes, absolutely. There's also a point though of sometimes there's just got to be multiple ways of doing things, right? You, you can have on your iPhone when you're looking at your mail and you can swipe to delete a message now. 
Well, you can also hit that little edit button that's up there and delete them just like normal too. So sometimes it's a matter of finding ways that might be the, the power user way of doing things, but might not necessarily be directly discoverable, but also offering opportunities of, for people that like to do things in a step-by-step -step manner. Something like pushing an edit button and then hitting the X to delete it or whatever. And that's usually, try not to make a feature so hidden that no one knows about it. And if you have to point it out and put like a, hey, look at me, or hey, here's the help on how to do this, then you might have gone a little bit too far one way, right? And uh, and that's the challenge of especially being technically oriented. You just naturally say, oh, what's so hard about a swipe from right to left? Well, some people don't even know that exists. And you also have the... You have people that are differently able that a swipe from right to left might be actually a difficult physical motion. And so there's all sorts of different users. You want to build something that just about anyone can use. And that's a challenge. You have to try and balance and take it to someone that you know is not necessarily technically inclined. And without saying anything, you say, hey, what do you think? Try it. Do this. Tell me how you think you should delete this or how you're going to add a, a new image. And just watch and observe. Because ultimately, it's about making something that other users enjoy, not necessarily you. And, and absolutely, yeah, it's, it's an absolute challenge. And I can't count the number of times I've had arguments in different projects, whether it be my own or other ones that I'm working on, or even other people's that want input as to what is obvious and what isn't. And uh, I think it's a challenge no matter what type of app you're working on. Yeah, but it sounds like you've got a, a pretty good approach. I like I like the idea of saying, you know, sort of not holding back the more advanced users by using taking advantage of gestures, but providing those cues for for people who are not necessarily as savvy, so that you you, you don't sort of have to draw a, a a line in the sand that prevents you from from really exploring uh, new interactions. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, and the thing is, is that in in the process, you can maybe teach them, hey, next time if you want to delete this, swipe right to left. The more you get someone to use it, the better. Especially in this day and age where apps kind of are a dime a dozen and people download them as quick as they drink a cup of coffee, they're just as likely to say, you know what, I don't like this, I'm deleting it. So you don't want to frustrate anyone either. If you frustrate someone within the first five minutes of using an app, odds are is you're not going to get a good review and you're not going to stay on their device. No matter the number of updates that you do, if you're not on the device, they're not getting the update unless they go and re-download the app. So how do you test that people are using the app the way you think they should? Some analytics, some just very general, though. I try to stay away from the, I need to know everything about you, what your mother made a name, the last four digits of your social security number, just so I can make the app better for you. That just seems way too invasive and just way too inappropriate. It's not necessary. A lot of it is feedback. A lot of it's just direct feedback of emails back and forth of, hey, how are you using this? Or like, there are people sharing, hey, I've been using it this way for the last few months and I love it. And that's a, you know, that's a great thing. Thankfully, the app in general is relatively simple. It's, you have some collections of boards that you can filter out, kind of, they're groups of boards. You pick your group, you pick the board that you want to modify, and you open it. And from there, it's whatever it is. You can add images, you can add text, 
So we kind of have an idea of how many images are averaged on a board or how many pieces of text or stuff like that. But beyond that, it hasn't been necessarily geared towards one type of user or the other. It's make it as easy for people who want text as other people who just want images and try and meet the happy medium there. So I'm not I'm not a huge believer in being overly analytical of, oh, well, this person added two images and then one piece of text and then one other image and then closed it. It's It doesn't really give an insight or a feel as to what the user was doing. For that, you kind of just have to engage them. It's uh, it's not that type of app. It's it's a feeling app more than a technical, very analytical app, I guess, in very generic terms. So we need a, need a way to detect how a person's feeling when they're using the app. <laughs> I submit it to mix it or something. Oh, there we go. That's right. The Apple it's Watch. coming. Yeah, oh, yes, the Apple Watch. Excuse me. The Apple I, I Watch. I keep making that mistake, and it, I keep saying iWatch, and then I'm like, no, it's not the iWatch. <laughs> I'm usually the guy that gets kind of annoyed when people call an iPod Touch an iTouch, that kind of thing, but I keep calling it the iWatch because that's what everybody's been calling it for six months. Yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah, I'm just excited to see what it can do. It's going to be interesting. Like I said, it's going to be interesting to see. I mean, that's a maybe a little too invasive, but I mean, could you imagine an app that actually is able to take your pulse and say it's a game or, or whatever it might be where it reacts to your pulse and that's how it changes the interaction. I mean, there's all sorts of different things. Now, maybe that's a little too creepy for an app like Moodboard, but uh, the possibilities are endless. Yeah, the the thing that's interesting about it, though, is that I really want to see how good the sensors are before I'm super, you know, excited about what True. it can do. Because, I mean, you know, those kinds of sensors, I've seen, like, the wristbands that, you know, take your heart rate and things like that. And some of them are okay, and some of them are horrible. And so, yeah, it just depends. They're fine until you get out and actually start running and get a little sweat going. Then, Yeah. Not so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but then you're trying to use them. They're great. But then you get the chest bands, and those are, like, super comfortable, right? So we're getting off on a tangent. Should we do the picks? <laughs> sure. Sure. All right. Alondo, why don't you start us off with picks? Both of my picks are related to issues that have come up this week today. So the first one is um, I, there's a blog post from a, a, Atomic Spin is the name of the blog, and it had to do with animation. I've been trying to get some animation working with keyboards and auto layout. And I was having a lot of difficult getting the frames to stay in the right place and to sort of get a, a, a hold on on the proper location, a, a proper animation based on the orientation of the device. And this article really helped out a lot as far as breaking things down. The only thing that's missing there, I will say, is this is not auto layout specific. It's still using frames, but you can make the necessary adjustments for auto layout. The second pick is a tool called Profile Manager. We uh, added a new iOS dev, and we've got some provisioning profile issues, and it was really difficult to kind of keep track uh, within Xcode. So we are using a new tool called Profile Manager that helps us manage which profiles are you know expired and what what we should be using where. Um, and it's really helping out a good bit to get our get a handle there. So there, those are my two picks. Cool, Andrew. What are your picks? Two picks today. So the first is it's just an article that I read recently and and liked, and it's about the Lego Movie, which I really enjoyed. It's sort of talks about how they made the movie, which I thought was interesting. I think the interesting thing about that movie is a lot of people think that they made the whole thing with real Lego bricks, but actually they didn't. It's mostly computer animated, and and it just talks about the process they went through uh, to make that look really good, like it was actually real 
Lego, and I, I like reading about this kind of thing where somebody puts in this much attention to detail in order to get things just right. So it's interesting, and it, it's on a website called Creative Block, which I don't read, but I might start because this is interesting. Then the other one is something that I'm sure has been picked several times before, but uh, it, that's ObjectiveC.io, but they have a new issue out right now, issue number 16, which is actually all about Swift. And Swift's been out for several months now, and I know a lot has already been written about it, but these guys get super smart authors to write their articles, and there's always new stuff that even an expert has not heard before or, you know, new things to learn. So I haven't gotten through this whole issue yet, but I'm looking forward to it. It's ObjectiveC.io. Those are my picks. Awesome. James, what are your picks? I have one pick. So if you have a house and you need a watchdog, I recommend getting a terrier. My dog has been going nuts <laughs> for the past five minutes while I've been on mute. Probably barking at a kid walking home from school, but he barks at other stuff too. So if you want a watchdog, terriers, nothing's coming near your house. <laughs> Awesome. That's my pick. All right. I've got a couple of picks. The first one is a book called Hounded. It's the first book in the Iron Druid Chronicles. I picked it up. I've had a few people recommend it to me. It's kind of a modern-day setting magic-type book. Really enjoyed it. And so, uh, in fact, I listened to it on Audible in like a day. So uh, (laughs) I'm going to pick that because I just, I really did. I really enjoyed it. And then I think that's all I've got for this week. Chris, what are your picks? First, to piggyback off of the Objective CIO, I think it was their third issue, has a great set of things on dealing with images. So go read that because they have a lot of information that I wish was available when I was initially doing some of the stuff with Moodboard. So that'll be, I guess, one kind of piggyback. The other thing is, is I've actually been working on renovating my house. I recently bought a house and kind of going through and dog-fooding my own app, but also seeing how other apps might help in the process. And one that I really found that I really liked is an app called Room Planner by Chief Architect. It allows you to lay out the different rooms. You can actually add furniture and then actually do a 3D walkthrough and paint the colors, get an idea of if you're remodeling a house as to what it actually looks like. It's actually a free app, but if you want to add things like being able to have absolute dimensions and things like that, there's some in-app purchases. But I highly recommend it. It was well worth the few bucks for the in-app purchases. And to be honest, I would have never gotten as far as I have with my remodel without that app. The other one, as I'm doing this remodel, I found it's called Garageo. It's an app-enabled garage door opener, which will work on your existing garage door. You don't need to go and buy another expensive garage door opener just so you can be able to use it with your app. It comes with a, an account that you can check the status of the door and all of that. So that's at garageio.com, and we'll have that posted. And that's been a, a great little tool to kind of make my house more connected. That's cool. All right. Well, uh, just before we wrap up, if people want to get a hold of you or they want to get the Mood Board app, where should they go? Come to a tiny tribe, a t i n y t r i b e dot com, uh, and you can reach me, Chris, at a tiny tribe dot com. Awesome. And, and there, there should be a link to the to the app store, or just go to the app store and look for Moodboard, all one word, M O O D B O A R D. Very cool. All right. Well, thanks for coming. And thank you uh, very much. Yeah, we look forward to having you in the forum and talking to you again. This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. 
You've been building software for a long time, and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. They're a small shop with experience shipping big products. They're smart, dedicated, will augment your team, and work as hard as you do. Find them online at madglory.com or on Twitter at madglory. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the iFreaks and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a form that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at ifreakshow.com slash form. 